Good morning. Can like run on a mile before you preach, huh? That was exciting. <laughs> um, I'm glad you guys are here today. Uh, we've got a lot to cover, and uh, let's go ahead and get to it. So, I hope you guys took some time this week to look at your renovate us, um, to spend some time in reflection and in reading. Um, today could go one of two different ways. If you remember from our membership class, for those of you that have been a part of it, those of you that um, have at least looked at it uh, when we were doing it on video online, when we talked about our identity as worshipers there, we spent a lot of time about how renovation kind of does worship. We talked a little bit about the doctrine behind it, um, and we talked about things such as the, the three audiences that we have. So obviously we worship God with believers in front of the world. Um, those are our three audiences. Uh, we talked about um, how it is um, something that's physical. It's something that we participate in. It's, we worship God with our actions, but we also worship God with our mind. It's spiritual. Um, our affections have to go towards him. It's not just one or the other. Uh, so we talked a lot about those things, and we, we could go through that again today, but I don't think that's going to be the best use of our time, and I don't think it's going to accurately display where we struggle with our identity of being a worshiper. Uh, not that that other stuff isn't good. If it wasn't <laughs> good, we wouldn't have taught it the first time. Um, it's good stuff, but that doesn't really convey who we are. It just kind of conveys what we do, um, what is worship versus how are we worship first. So that's the direction we want to go today. So as we are kind of wrapping up a little bit this series, we've only got this week and next week left, um, we have to ask the question, how are we doing at our identities? We've been talking about them a lot at home gathering. We've also been talking about our rhythms and what those look like, particularly coming out of our identities. But how are you doing at being a family? What did that week change? When we talked about our identity of being a family, what does that change? How does that pair with our vision at renovation? What about being a learner? Let me put those things to use. Are you living out your identity of being a learner? That was going to be incredibly important today as we talk about worshipers. About last week as servants, did you serve anybody this week? Did you change maybe the way you thought about it? Did you Reflect on to what extent you're willing to serve. And these are the questions that we've got to ask if we're going to be doing this stuff about identity. Because all week, I still lived out the identity of who I am. Whether I want to or not, it's, it's what we do. And so if we're not taking these identities and using them with gospel intentionality, we're missing the point. And I think that's not going to be any more clear than it will be t today. When we look at worshipers, we're looking at something that's a little bit different than our other identities. Uh, in that, this one is probably the most revelatory of what is in our heart. The servant, yeah, we can kind of see maybe we're being selfish in it, but we can disguise it. Um, family, you've been to family reunions before, right? You can fake family. Um, I, I have the ants come up to me and pinch my cheeks, and we're in Cleveland, and I don't know who these people are. But I'm smiling, I'm the kid, and uh, it's okay. All I know is that all their names start with J. Um, <laughs> so that you can fake family. Um, when it comes to learners, we can certainly try to um, 
appear smarter than we are, right? We can act like we know God deeper than we do. We can tell people that we read our Bible 80 times a week um, when maybe it's one. We can do all that, but when it comes to worshiping, this is probably the most, again, revelatory, other than maybe missionary, of really what is in your heart. And so today we're going to take a little bit of different approach to worshipers, and we're going to talk a lot about idolatry. And no, I'm not telling you at the beginning that we're going to spend our time worshiping idols. It's not the direction we're going. We need to understand the, the part that idolatry plays in our identities and particularly in worshiping. So I'm going to read you our statement uh, in our handbook that you guys will be getting next week. Uh, it's kind of a condensed and more, I guess, literary version of membership class for those of you guys have done it before. Um, people that were at our class last time have seen that. Um, you'll be getting those next week. Uh, this is our statement. This has been the same for a long time. It says we are worshipers, and we define a worshiper as we are the worshipers of the only true God who understand that all of life is meant to bring worship to God. That's our statement. And so the long form of that is worship is marked by a few key aspects, spirit, truth, everything. Clearly, God is marked as the only one do the worship of our lives. As God brings about redemption in our lives, all of it stands as a monument to God's greatness as he transforms our lives into living sacrifices. As we become more consistently these living sacrifices, we will worship both in spirit and then in truth. It will be truth from God's revealed word that will guide us, and our spirits will unite with the Holy Spirit, bringing about an authentic, heartfelt, and mind-engaging worship of God that consumes all of our lives. So the biggest thing that I want you to walk away with today is that you are always worshiping something, and you are never not worshiping. It is an all-the-time function. It is something that you do without ceasing. And whether you, uh, would, uh, whether you would claim it or not, you are always worshiping something. There's someone on Facebook I was interacting with that said that they worship nothing. And they're proud of that. They, they literally worship nothing. To, so they give worth or value to nothing. And so I simply replied, isn't that ultimately going to be worship of self? He goes, ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> yes, that's why I did it. Um, <laughs> you're always going to be worshiping something. Whether you think you are or not, if you say that you worship nothing, you're probably worshiping self. You want to dig deeper, it's probably intellect. And at the end of that conversation, discovered yes, in fact, he does worship something. We always are worshiping, and we're always worshiping something. So let's go super basic just to kind of start this and walk through here. Where's our starting point? So we as humans are worshipers. We're always ascribing worth to something. Whether we know it or not, we're always giving worth or ascribing worth to things. As such, we, whether Christians or not, this is just all humans, are either honoring God or honoring something else. We are living in obedience to God, which brings him honor, or we are living in sin, which dishonors God. You're doing one of the two things. We can't get away from that. So if that's our, those are our variables, they, they won't change. You're either doing one or the other. And that's where we're starting today. And so let's start with the bad side, dishonoring God. What causes us to dishonor God? Well, living in sin is that. So what is, what is sin? Well, sin, ultimately, we would say, is anything that goes against the character of God. What does that, what does that do for helping me understand and maybe interpret what my sin might be, and particularly if I don't know necessarily the character of God? How should I know what sin is, and we would say ultimately then that sin is a result of unbelief. 
So if sin is something that goes against the character of God, it does not reflect who he is, then when we sin, we are not believing that God is something. And we're going to flush that out as we talk about idols. So what do we do with sin? You may say, well, I don't sin a lot. I don't sin much. Or maybe I don't sin at all. There are people who would say that. And we turned into 1 John chapter 1 and look in verses 8 through 10. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Last time when I was talking about learners, we saw that there's a huge danger that we can deceive, be deceived, and let alone deceive ourselves. That's a terrifying prospect. So for us to deceive ourselves, we find then that the truth is not in us. In verse 9, though, it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a Christian bar of soap. I learned that when I was like five. Number, verse 10, though, is if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we often, and, and no, you're right here, so <laughs> offense to my parents. They taught me verse 9, and uh, I used it a lot. I, I was a clean Christian because of that. But I think the danger, though, is that we, we lose some of the gravity of what sin is if we miss 8 and 10. We deceive ourselves if we think that we have no sin. And when we were back in Luke, and Matt was telling us that we should rebuke each other seven times a day, that's a lot of Christian bar of soaping, <laughs> We have to use verse 9 a lot. And if we don't understand the gravity of sin, then we'll just do as Paul says in Romans 6 and say that the more we sin, the more grace I get. And that's not the way it works. We have to understand the depth, the gravity, and and how seriously God handles sin, particularly idolatry, as we're going to see. So if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we say we've not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. There's no middle ground there. So let's go to our text for today. If you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're going to see today, the entire Bible is a feasting ground of idolatry. We're going to be going a lot of different places, um, but we're going to be based out of 1 Corinthians 10. I just chose this one. There's like 800 other options. I can actually hear them this time. Usually he talks about it and I'm like, what? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's read verses 1 through 5. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. All this is to say, Paul is trying to draw a connection for us between the New Testament church and Israel. As we know from Gospel and Kingdom, that Israel is a type, essentially, of the church. These people were for us as examples. And we're going to see that explicitly in just a second. Israel before is now tied to us in this passage. So our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through, all were baptized, all ate, all drank. They drank from the spiritual rock, it's a capital R, that followed them. And that rock then explicitly was Christ. Paul intentionally does not use the word Lord here in verse 4. 
He uses Christ intentionally. Why? Well, a danger for us, if we remember back in Gospel and Kingdom, is to try to put God in three different times. So Old Testament was God the Father, right? New Testament, Jesus, Church Age, Holy Spirit. We would call that modalism. So God is one God, but he became a different thing every time. So once he became Jesus, he no longer was God the Father. That is not a true Trinitarian perspective. All right? Be aware of that. God is all three at all times across all eternity, yet he is one God. Jesus says, in fact, in the New Testament, that I and the Father are one. And so when you see an angel of the Lord, you see Yahweh interacting with um, with people in the Old Testament, understand that, that that's Christ. That is Jesus. Before becoming incarnate, he was active in the Old Testament. And Paul is explicit here when he says that the rock is Christ. Now, verse 5, though. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. All right, so you guys are just like them. Made that pretty clear. But God was not really happy with them. So look out. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. So if you keep saying that my fathers, my relatives, everything, everything that I come from, God was not pleased with, I'm going to be on guard when I find that he's saying I'm like them. Because God may not be pleased with me. When he says that they were overthrown in the wilderness, he literally means they were strewn about. And if you want to see not pleased, that sounds like, yeah, he was a little disappointed with them. No, that's a vast understatement. Out of all of the numbers that left in the Exodus in Egypt, two, two people made it to the promised land. Joshua and Caleb are the only ones. You guys seen Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments? And they use the huge dust cloud to simulate a lot of people moving. All of those people died in the wilderness. Two people made it into the land flowing with milk and honey. So when he says that he was not pleased, it's a vast understatement. So what do we, what do, we do? Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Now we see a little bit of a transition here. So what's going to keep me... New Testament believer in Corinth from being like my fathers who did not please God. I have to look to the examples that they set and learn from them, not emulate them, so that I do not desire evil as they did. So what is the evil that they did? What does Paul then begin to warn us with? And the first thing in your notes is the dangers of idolatry. The dangers of idolatry. We cannot miss this if we're going to move forward as a body, as Christians, as believers. We cannot miss the dangers of idolatry. And so before we kind of dig into our text, let's talk about what idolatry is. So ultimately what we're going to use as our term for idolatry is taking something whether it's good or bad, and making that thing ultimate. Taking any, many things, just something, 
whether it's good or bad, and making that thing ultimate. That is what we would call idolatry. So similar to the one ring of Tolkien, we can take our worthy causes and concerns, so for them freeing slaves, finding freedom, uh, overthrowing evil, we can take all of those things and make them ultimate so that we will do anything to achieve them, anything at all. The problem is that it takes that good thing that we have, that cause, that, that concern, even if it's a good thing, it can take that and turn it into an absolute. And if we take that to its fullest extent, which we will by having that as our primary focus, it's going to overturn every other allegiance and value that we have. That may sound extreme and like, oh, I'll, I'll catch it before we get there. I didn't. <laughs> I don't. I don't recognize that these things are ultimate in my life. And by the time that I do, I realize that I've overturned every rule, every allegiance that I had before, just to attain the thing that I wanted, even if it was a good thing. I don't realize that I've done that until I'm past them. And so, similar to the ring, the wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it. An idol is something that we can't live without. That one thing that we've made ultimate, we chase it. And when we get to a certain point, having done everything to attain it, we're enslaved to it. We can't imagine life without that thing. The problem is that we must have it. We break rules that we once honored. We even harm others. We even harm ourselves in order to get that thing. So how then do we make a God? Timothy Keller defines idols like this. Says it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's idolatry. That's how we make a God, a counterfeit God, as he would call it. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Now, as I'm throwing around this language of idolatry, how many of you are thinking of like carved stone or a little Buddha? Anybody? Really? Okay. Well, you guys are more involved than I thought. Um, <laughs> I would say... Typically, when you talk in our culture about idols, they're thinking of like a Buddha doll. Not doll, I call it doll. It's probably disrespectful to a demon. Um, I can say that. You'll see that later. <laughs> um, we, we picture graven images, as, as God said in the Ten Commandments. We have no graven images. Picture visual things. And it's not, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be a, a, a pillar or a, a stick of bale. It's not going to be an Asherah pole. It's not going to be something that we dance around. It's going to be something that's in our heart. And because of that, I, sometimes I think that the ancient world was a little more honest with themselves than we are. You see, we, we think back to them and, and say, well, I haven't seen an idol in forever. Unless I go to like a Chinese restaurant, I don't see anything. But they're all in our heart. And, and then for them, though, in the ancient world, they're saying, well, all these things I worship... Let's just 
build a statue. They just put a name and a face to it. So Corinth has Aphrodite, the goddess of love. We have Mars, the god of war. We have, obviously, Zeus or Jupiter. You look at Paul walking around, and, and he, <laughs> he comes across, he's walking through this garden full of statues, full of idols. And he comes up to one that's unnamed, and it's in case they missed one. They're more honest than we are. What happens then if you go home and you were honest with yourself, if you did your renovate us and you thought about this, that thing that you idolized, what if you were to take a block of wood and carve that out and set it on your bedstand and name it? That would give probably a more honest representation of the way that we worship idols. But the problem is, is that they are in our heart and we think that we can hide them. So let's ask. Most of the time in Scripture when we see idolatry, it's spoken about in a marriage or love relationship. And what are you supposed to do in a marriage or love relationship? You're supposed to love, you're supposed to trust, and you're supposed to obey. So what are you loving? What are you trusting? What are you obeying? If it's anything other than God, it is an idol. And so idols of the heart. Ezekiel 14.3 says of the elders of Israel that these men have set their idols up in their hearts. It resides in the heart. And Stephen Miller, describing uh, the ancient Hebrew notion of heart, says that heart is the, it means the center of all of our being. We've talked about it being the center or the seat of emotions. He says that the source of all thoughts, emotions, longing, passions, and desires, the core of our integrity and our character, the character of our hearts, good, bad, and ugly, will necessarily shape everything that we do. Why? Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Luke 6.45, he says that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's why I say that worshiper is one of the most revelatory of, of who you are. When I look at Facebook, what do I see you worshiping? When you talk to us, what do I hear you worshiping? Because that's what you've been storing up in there. Now, some of these things, again, may be good. They're just fine. But if we make them ultimate, we're going to see that because it's going to come out. That's what's going to be at the top. R.C. Sproul talks about the heart and, and how it has such power in becoming and showing who we are that when speaking of uh, pastors or political leaders or anybody really who, who has some sort of moral fall, he says that people fall in private long before they fall in public because they're giving into idols and temptation in their heart private. They fall long before they do in public. You'll never see someone fall in public that hasn't already fallen in their heart. And so the danger when we're talking about worshiping is if we're supposed to either do, like at the beginning, either honoring God or honoring anything else. We hear Jesus in Isaiah, quoting Isaiah in Matthew 15. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. If our hearts are far from God, then our worship is absolutely pointless. It is vain. There's no value. There's no credit. He doesn't even want it. 
Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, said, The great God values not the service of men if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges the heart. He has no regard to outward forms of worship. If there be no, no inward adoration, if no devout affection be employed therein, it is therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly for God. And so the question is, is, is it a matter of infinite importance to you? Is it a matter of infinite importance to you to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly for God? John Calvin says, I call piety that reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. Knowing the benefits of knowing God and what that induces, that's what I call piety piety when joined with reverence. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. Those are huge words for us. For the same man says that the human heart is a factory of idols. So, what idols do I have? You may think of, well, I like money probably a little too much. Is that an idol? What does that reveal about your heart? Money's not bad. Money's not evil. We often say that it is the root of all evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. What about our kids? They can be idols. But the danger is if if you did your reno- how many of you guys did renovate us? I'm going to do confession here. Okay. Those things that, that you reflected on, the thing that came to mind, that thing unless you're really dug into it, is probably not your heart idol. It's probably just a surface idol. It's something, yes, that you are worshiping instead of God, but it has to point to something deeper. And so when we're talking about idols of the heart, we're talking about the thing that is ultimate, the thing that, here's the key, if I didn't have it, life would not be worth living anymore. So kids can fall into that category, yes, I have a friend who just found out um, from his estranged um, family, he has two daughters that he's not been able to contact, and he was actually able to make a connection yesterday and found out that one of them passed away a year ago. What does that do to your heart? I'm not going to say even that that, though, is a heart idol. It points to one of these other ones, something that's deeper. And so we would recognize probably four main heart idols. Let's talk about those briefly. The first one would be power. I think power is a primary heart idol. Now, you're probably going to be strong in one of these four, something that you, one that you majorly struggle with, but there's a good chance that you'll have some parts of the other ones. Power. So if you have a power idol, your nightmare would be humiliation. Why? Because 
People with power desire to have influence over others. So to be humiliated removes all of your influence. Oftentimes the people around you are going to feel used because you're using them in order to gain and further influence. Your problem emotion is probably going to be anger. You get angry when you're not able to influence life in a certain way or particularly people. Power is a primary idol. Another one would probably be control. If you have a control idol, you want to essentially control all of the circumstances in your life in order to affect an outcome. Your outcome. That would be a control idol. And so your nightmare would be rejection. The people around you are going to feel smothered. Your problem emotion is going to be cowardice. Another one would be approval. If you have an approval idol, you want everyone to think well of you. That is your ultimate goal. So you will do anything in order to make that happen. Now, your nightmare is going to be stress and demands. People around you are going to feel neglected. I'm sorry, that's the wrong idol. I have my paper switched. You're giving me the stink eye. All right, sorry. Approval is going to be uncertainty. To be condemned. People around you will be. And your problem emotional will be will worry. The final one is comfort. This is me, and this is why I caught it. <laughs> If you have a comfort idol, your nightmare is going to be stress and demands. Why? Because they make you uncomfortable. You have to do stuff. You're going to be seeking out your comfort. Even the things, though, that you enjoy doing, you tailor in such a way to make it comfortable. Comfort, approval, control, power are not bad things. But if you make them ultimate, it's going to control all these other things. People around you are going to feel neglected. And your problem of emotion is going to be boredom. So, in order to diagnose, what is your primary heart idol? We have four questions. These are in your notes. The first one is, what is my greatest nightmare? What is my greatest nightmare? A good way to do that would probably be to imagine yourself on stage. And whatever happens to you and whatever feeling that gives you in front of all these people will help you identify which one it is. My comfort idol was just tinged a little bit when I noticed that I had these mixed up. That helps me identify what mine is. Number two, what do I rely on or comfort myself with when things go badly or become difficult? What do I rely on or comfort myself with when things go badly or become difficult? Number three, what makes me feel the most self-worth? What am I proudest of? It should be easy coming out of the 90s and all of the self-esteem stuff that we have been pushing in our culture. Number four, what do I really want and expect out of life? What would make me happy? What is that one thing that if you were able to get or attain or have would make life perfect? Be a kid, a spouse, a job, a computer, a car, 
a house. Control of people, perfect schedule. So from here on out, try to keep in mind your heart idol as we look and see what the Israelites did. How were the Israelites idolaters? If you have your Bible, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look in verse 7. There are four primary ones that, we, that Paul points out for us. The first one is idolatry in general. The second is sexual immorality. The third is trying God. And the fourth is complaining. And I think all of those point back to our four primary ones. Let's look at verse 7. It says very explicitly and very easily, there's no implications here for us because he says it straight up. Do not be idolaters. Okay? Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's referencing Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. Understand that this picture where they're at, they're at the base of the holy mountain, Mount Sinai. They just left Egypt in the great Exodus. God's presence is visible in an immense cloud consuming the mountain. If anything touched the mountain, it died. They're far from a pagan temple, pagan priests or idols, that they managed to make their own idols and improvise their own ceremonies. They built an idol, they had a feast, and they played. That means sexually. It's a euphemism for sexual relations. And 3,000 of them died by sword and a plague was sent. Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. He's interacting with the presence of God. Meanwhile, the people and even Aaron are down at the bottom of the mountain. And they build an idol. They have a feast. And they played. See, the Jewish culture was just feasts. They had lots of feasts. It was a common way that they worship God. A sacrifice followed by a feast. Well, they feasted, but then for some reason they felt that they had to add pagan influences. So they needed something to look at. They built an idol. And they worshiped that idol. And then going even further, they had an orgy at the bottom of the mountain. That's certainly not in God's word as far as commanding worship. Now, who were they trying to worship? God. But they wanted to do it their way. The problem is, the right God can only be worshipped the right way. Those who try to honor God with immoral and pagan practices bring dishonor on Him and judgment on themselves. Just because you're doing something for God does not necessarily mean that it's right. So as we're talking about having a heart of worship where it consumes us, Everything has to line up for the way that God says to worship him. He's God. He gets to make the rules. If he says, worship me this way, we have to worship him that way. We don't get to modify it. We don't get to say, well, God, I'm really good at this, so I'm going to do it this way. But it's for you. He says to do it a certain way. The right God has to be worshipped the right way. Verse 8, we see... I mean, it was touched on in verse 7, but here very clearly, sexual immorality. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This comes from Numbers chapter 25. If you want to flip over there, you can. Numbers chapter 25. 
It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all of the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you will kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. 24,000 people died because of this one event. Verse 9, we see trying God. He says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This references Numbers chapter 21. If you're familiar with the story, the people are on their way, uh, having wandered around in the wilderness some more, there's a lot of accounts of it, uh, to go to the land of Edom. They're heading to, to Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You brought us out of Egypt. We were no longer slaves, but now we're here. You've been feeding us and giving us water but there's nothing to eat and there's nothing to drink. But this food is terrible. He calls the food that God provides worthless. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Not figuring this out yet, idolatry is a huge deal. So when the I am is complained against for having provided everything, for delivering them from Egypt, for crushing the armies of the Egyptians, under the water. And then you tell him that what he provides is worthless. The snakes come immediately. One more. Let's read this together. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Numbers chapter 16. I'm going to encourage you to. We're going to read a lot here. <laughs> Verse 10 back in Corinthians says, Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the capital D destroyer. This references Numbers chapter 16. This, this, this is crazy. Not crazy as in God's crazy, but people. People are crazy. Verse 1, it says, Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Ibram, the sons of Eliab. Sons of Reuben. All right, so they took some men. So there's some 
some people. Big ones that you're going to look for are Korah, Kohath, Dathan, and Abiram. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation. These are leaders, 250 leaders, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. He said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, you sons of Levi. And Moses continued, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers and the sons of Levi with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So the people have come and brought a complaint to Aaron and to Moses, to men, to the leaders. And Moses says now, you've gone too far. His first response is to fall on his face. The moment you don't see Matt and I fall on our faces when people sin against the Lord is the day that you need to vote us out. This is a heartbreaking story. They desire more than what God has given them. And he says, is it not enough that he's done what he has? Understand that it's not Aaron that you're sinning against. It is God who you have a problem with. You don't have a problem with God's man. You have a problem with God. Verse 12, And Moses sent to Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I will not. I have not harmed one of them. So he, Moses is sending for the other guys that are rising up. And they say, we're not going to come. You're a liar. You're not giving us what we want. Does that make sense? Verse 16, and Moses says to Korah, be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron, tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all of the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. This is like the climax of a movie, all right? You've got the leaders here. You've got all of Israel watching. And you've got these men with their incense and their censers and fire. Showdown. And the glory of the Lord appears. It's game time. Verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. 
And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you will be angry with all the congregation? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So the congregation is saying, Slow down. (laughs) They sinned and you're going to kill all of us. And God certainly has the right to. Praise God for his mercy and his grace in this moment. So God tells Moses, tell the congregation to get away from these men. And so Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, if they were to pass from old age, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, illness, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, And the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol. And you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze and scatter them, create a sign an altar for the people of Israel. So he did such. He hammered them out and made a covering for the altar. It's a reminder for Israel that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord. If you want to become like Korah, you will suffer the same fate. Now catch this. This blows my mind. Verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. When the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it, from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation to make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. And so Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700. Besides those who died in the affair of Korah, 
And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. These are our forefathers. We're connected to them. And they lived as an example for us to learn from. We may not desire evil as they did. If you dig through this passage and try to identify what the hearts of the people of Israel were saying, it is full of selfishness. They are far from God. Yet even in their next day grumbling against the man who told them to get away from the people who just died, they complained to him, and Moses' first response is to go and make atonement for them as quick as possible. John Calvin says that those persons, it is true, murmured against Moses. But as they had no ground for insulting him and had no occasion for being incensed against him, unless it was that he had faithfully discharged the duty which had been enjoined upon him by God, God himself was assailed by that murmuring. Let us accordingly bear in mind that we have to do with God and not with men. If we rise up against the faithful ministers of God, let us know that this audacity will not go unpunished. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Verse 11 says that now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. If you remember gospel and kingdom, we are now in the new kingdom. Jesus says that kingdom has come upon you. It's now a new age. So they're an example that we might not desire evil as they did. The problem is, is we desire evil like they did. So what's Paul trying to say? You're like them. God wasn't pleased with them. He killed them and judged them rightly. But we're over here now, and we still desire the same things that they do. We still have idols in our lives. We still practice sexual immorality in our thoughts or our actions. We still complain. We still try God. What in the world are we to do? What's to stop us from becoming just like the Israelites? There's hope. There's always hope. Always, 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 always hope. And that's what's going to lead us into what is our identity as a worshiper. Verse 12 says this, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. For God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Praise God. Praise God that we don't have to look exactly like the Israelites. So how then do we do this? How do we overcome idolatry? I hope you see the heavy, heavy, heavy importance of idolatry. God hates idolatry. Every sin is born out of it. That is why it is first in the line on the Ten Commandments. Sin ultimately is always going to be believing something that is not true about God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the served and served created things rather than the Creator. So how do we not worship a lie? How do we not take things that are not true about God and instead take things that are true about God and let that keep us from sin? 
This is where learners come in. The next point is theology leads to doxology. This is how we are replacing idols. Theology leads to doxology. So continuing in our text, verse 14, says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul tells us a lot of things here. And in order to be honest, he's ultimately talking about um, our freedom in Christ and how we worship in freedom. Uh, that does take us through idols like we've been talking about. But on a grander scale in Corinthians, he's talking about Christian freedom. Uh, but for our purposes here, we're, we're looking at the worship um, at its pinnacle here. We understand that we're one body, just as we are then tied back to Israel at the beginning of this text. We're tied now to each other in one body as we're participants in the blood, participants in the bread when we talk about communion or the Lord's Supper. And so we see here that we can't be both. You can't take of the cup of God and also take of the cup of demons. And Paul is explicitly calling anything here that is worshipped other than God a demon. So when you look at the Hindu religion, that is a terrifying prospect that every single one of those gods represents a demon. We cannot take of both. For if we take of both, we really only take of one. And so when we're dealing with idols, they can't simply be removed. You can't simply not drink the cup of demons and appropriately worship God. You have to drink the cup of the blood. It's not enough for us to simply remove an idol. If you have a issue with money, you can't simply be poor. Because then your idol of money is going to be on the flip side. Instead of having enough and being comfortable by it, you're going to be pious for being poor. Something else will replace that. You have to replace it with something. You have to replace it with God. So how do we do this? In order to not sin, we have to believe rightly about God. So the question is, is when we sin, we have to ask ourselves, what am I not believing about God? It's like the third question that we ask in counseling. What are you not believing about God? And you don't necessarily have to have an answer right away, but that's what we have to explore. That's what we're trying to find out. What is it that we're not believing about God? So when I get worried, when I get concerned about my family and our finances. What am I not believing about God? I mean, I should be concerned for my family, right? That's, that's my job to look out for them, take care of them. Jessica and Adeline are my responsibility. I have to give an account for how I lead them. But when we get to week four <laughs> and paycheck isn't coming for another four days and I start to get worried, what am I... What am I saying about God? That he doesn't provide. That he's not all-powerful. That he's not 
provisionary, that he's not sovereign and in control. A whole number of things about God I'm not believing in. If I believe those things, then I would not have no cause to worry. I know them. I don't love them. I have an understanding of them, but I don't believe them. And so in order for us to overcome idolatry, we can't just remove it. That won't work. It might work for a moment, but something else will take its place. We will make something else ultimate. We have to make God ultimate. And the only way to make God ultimate is to know who he is. The only way is to know who he is. So I've got four tools for you to help combat idols. The first one is God is great. So we do not have to be in control. If you have a control idol, this is your answer. God is great, so we do not have to be in control. And so when we look at this one, we see that God is powerful. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do anything. He is sovereign. He is in complete control. But we find ourselves worrying. And what do those produce? What e- the efforts that we have of worrying, of con- being concerned about the future, what does that even get us? It gets us worry, busyness, frustration, stress, controlling or manipulating others, a lack of gentleness, pride when things go well, or guilt when they don't go well. We get nowhere. So what do we do to remove that idol? We look at how great God is. You have to look at how great he is. And because he is great, we do not have to be in control. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He submitted fully to the Father, something no human had ever done. And on the cross, the countless sins of billions of humans were piled on top of him. And his death was sufficient to pay the penalty for them. He absorbed all the wrath of God that he had for those sins. Jesus overcame death by raising from the dead, undoing the curse of sin that had reigned since the Garden of Eden, and he sent his spirit to live inside of humans, empowering them to do the same works and even greater than he accomplished on the earth. Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. Repent of your desire to be in control. Believe that God, through his son Jesus, has clearly demonstrated his greatness. Worship him as the one true sovereign. For the truth will set you free. I listened back to my sermon uh, two weeks ago on learners, and I noticed that I did a lot of pleading. I don't typically do. And this is why. You have to know God. You have to. I, I, I am pleading because I want you to know God. He is magnificent and he is the only answer that we have. And he has given us everything we need for a life of godliness in his word and in his son Jesus. So if you hear me pleading, it's because this is the only answer. I had the opportunity to worship at my former church with their youth event this past weekend. Uh, and it was obviously God's timing right before I'm getting ready to do worship. And I got to worship with um, my friends that I've been with for a long time um, and, uh, and kind of go back there and enjoy that time together. But God took time there. I was playing bass, so I didn't have to think as much, um, to work on my heart uh, as I was doing that and really just worship him in a different way. It was a different setting. It wasn't the same. It broke it up for me, and getting to see the beauty and magnificence of what God is doing and who he is 
is something that I want for each and every one of you. It's something that Matt wants for each and every one of you. That's why we're here. God is great. But we can't, we can't be in control. It's an illusion. The second one is God is glorious. So we don't have to fear others. If an approval idol is your issue, this is, this is the answer for you. God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. Fear of man has many symptoms. Susceptibility to peer pressure, needing something from a spouse, a concern with self-esteem, being overcommitted because you can't say no, a fear of being exposed, small lies to make yourself look good, people making you jealous, angry, depressed or anxious, avoiding people altogether, comparing yourself to others and fear of talking about Jesus. But if God is glorious, we don't have to fear people. I don't care if they reject me. I don't care if they think bad about me. I don't care if they're jealous of me or if I become jealous of them. I don't have to be jealous of them. I have God. I have God, and he is the most glorious thing on this planet and in this universe are ever created. Nothing compares to him. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, and so Jesus shows us the full weight, the full significance of the character and nature of God. Everything about who God is, Jesus represents perfectly. Jesus shows us God as he really is. We can't see God because he will, it would kill us. Just as Moses could not see God, he had to hide behind a rock as his glory passed him by and he had to see the back of God lest he die. But Jesus shows us who God is perfectly. God, in all of his majesty, splendor, wisdom, beauty, power, compassion, grace, patience, and love, all of that was put in display in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now imagine Jesus, the glorious one, the perfect Savior and Messiah, and then the person that you fear, standing side by side. Who's the most glorious Beautiful, holy, awesome, and majestic. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. Comfort, if comfort is your idol, this is your answer, if you will. Every physical need you have is a picture of your spiritual need. We talked about that with our rhythm of eating. Uh, It's a remembrance and reflection of our need for God, both physically and spiritually. So physical needs are not bad, but it's a reflection or a picture of our spiritual need. So our body needs rest, our soul needs rest. Our body's thirsty, our soul is thirsty. Our body is hungry, our soul is hungry. Body needs love and intimacy, your soul needs love and intimacy. And God in his goodness meets the needs of your body. And God in his goodness meets the needs of your soul. Not only does he meet them, he's the only one who can. Nothing else can meet the needs of our soul but God. And so knowing our tendency to look to created things instead of a creator, Jesus came saying this. He says, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me will never go hungry. He said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. He's not talking about cannibalism as the way to fill your stomach forever. He's talking not about magic water as if we take one sip and we'll never thirst again. He's talking about feeding on him in the spiritual sense about having our hungry and thirsty soul filled forever by the goodness and the glory of God. He's the only one who can, so he's the only one that will fill us. 
and will never need anything or anybody else. He is good. We don't have to go anywhere else. God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves. If power is your idol, this is it. God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves. We say all the time that God is gracious, but much of the time we live as though we do deserve things, that we've proven something to someone. We live with a sense of entitlement. We feel as though our own hard work and performance has merited us something, either from God or, or, or from other people. It's what people around you will feel used. This is the same thing as looking God in the eye and saying, you are not gracious. All that I have is not a free gift from you. I've worked hard to earn it. I have proven myself to you, and now you are obligated to bless me. And fundamentally, what we are saying is that we are not defined by the work of Jesus on our behalf, but rather we are defined by our own work. Pride and guilt, though, become replaced with confidence and humility. We understand that God is gracious. We see that confidence becomes the performance of Jesus because of the performance of Jesus. makes me acceptable to God. I can be confident now, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. In spite of my failures, even, I'm confident because Christ is gracious and he accomplished the work. And then I find that I can be humble because I constantly need the grace of God because of my ongoing failures, and I don't have to prove myself. I can be confident in spite of my failures because of what Christ did, and I can be humble because of those failures that I constantly need grace. And God is gracious because of our sin. The only thing we deserve from God is death. But through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he offers us life. And the only thing we have to do in order to receive God's grace is accept it. And when we do, we're made right with him. It's a positional thing. And along with that position comes all the blessings and glory of God that Calvin was talking about. We're fully accepted and loved by God, and there's nothing we have done to earn it, and there's nothing we can do to lose it. There's nothing left to prove. And so finally, who are we as worshipers? If you've removed the idols and you've replaced them with God, what do we do? We worship him for who he is and what he has done. Piper says famously that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So the first thing here, enjoy who he is. He is God. <laughs> this is why our identity as learners is so, so, so important. If you're not actively seeking to learn more about God, you're not going to grow as a worshiper, and you greatly, greatly, greatly increase the likelihood of believing a lie about God and becoming an idol worshiper. The problem is that some of us don't worship God because we don't know him. Even those who profess to be Christians, we don't know who God is. After instructing people on how to read a Bible and, and practice just consistency in reading Scripture. Uh, the next thing that I counsel them to do as far as study is concerned, and this is kind of a spoiler alert from learners, uh, is to learn the attributes of God. If you don't know who God is, you can't worship Him. I can worship money because I know what money does. I can worship power because I know how to influence people. I know what that can get me. But I can't worship God if I don't know who He is. 
And so if I ask, Lord, tell me five attributes of who God is, can you do that? Can you worship God because of his, or because of his, if you're drawing question marks there, then you don't know who he is. Who is he? Who is God? God is sovereign. He's faithful in all things. He's absolutely provisionary of everything we could possibly ever need or even want. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. But even in his justice, he's merciful. And he's gracious in what he gives to his sons and daughters. He's eternal. He has always been and will forever be. He's all-knowing. He's the author of knowledge. He created everything there is to know. Nothing is unknown by God. He's all-powerful. He's able to accomplish anything. He does what he wills. He is a holy, magnificent God. And that's why we worship him. He is the only one worthy of honor and praise. And then what has he done? Just look at the cross. Look at the cross. We were dreadful, dreadful sinners without any hope. There was nothing we could do. We can't even pay the entire price of what was owed, let alone have enough merit to come back and live with God forever. Look at creation. Everything that he created, we screwed it up. Yet nonetheless, he redeems us. And ultimately, one day he's going to restore everything, and he's already doing that now. We know that we're totally depraved. We can't do anything good apart from God's grace. Yet he chooses us anyways, based on nothing that we can do before we even did anything. He chose us in his mercy. He effectively atones for us. He pays the penalty completely. He absorbs all the wrath completely. He irresistibly draws us. He calls us by name. He loves us. He woos us with the love of a husband. And he promises to complete our salvation and perseverance, the very salvation that he is the author and originator of. And he's also the perfecter of it. How can you not worship a God like that? Calvin says, we're not going to understand until we see what a God he is. Worship him for who he is and what he has done. Everything that you know about God should lead to doxology. The best writers outside of scripture that we have, all of their stuff on doctrine always includes doxology. They're always praising God because of who he is. We have one song to sing. Worship does not end after this. It doesn't. It does not end. It has to completely, completely consume us. As we look back at our definition of worshipers at Renovation Church, worship is marked by a few key aspects, spirit, truth, everything. God is the only one who is due the worship of our lives. God brings about redemption in our lives and all of it stands as a monument to God's greatness as he transforms our lives into living sacrifices. And as we become more consistently these living sacrifices, we will worship both in spirit and in truth.
It will be truth from God's revealed word that will guide us and our spirits will unite with the Holy Spirit, bringing about an authentic, heartfelt, and mind-engaging worship of God that consumes all of our lives. Let's pray and we'll worship together. Holy Father, God, we are so thankful for who you are. Father, that we have such a God as you, who's perfect in all that he is. A Father that knows us by name. A Father that loves us and gave everything for us. Father, we're thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Father, we remember that you gave everything and require nothing. And Father, we lay our lives down. We lay our lives down daily as we become wholly consumed by you. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.